0: Good morning church family. It's good to see you. I've got a couple of things that I want to share with you before we jump into our passage uh, this morning. Uh, The first is what a blessing it was to serve with many of you at Habitat this week. Um, I'll be honest, it was a lot harder than I was expecting. I worked half a day and thought I was going to die, but uh, it was good because it was more encouraging than anything. There's just something sweet, something special about serving alongside each other as we serve those who are in need. And and I think it's important. I've mentioned this before. I want to tell you again. I think it's really important that we take what we learn out here, uh, in here, and we go and we, we live it out there in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. And I know, listen, I get it. We can't solve all the world's problems. But instead of pontificating about all those problems, let's just go put our our faith into practice and and try to make a difference, getting outside of our comfort zones and into the lives of other people around us. The second thing that I want to encourage you in is just uh, thank you for all the things that you've been writing on the Hebrews wall out in the foyer. I want you to know every week I go look at that board and I see what has been added that's new. And I'm always encouraged by your observations and your comments and the things that you highlight, um, especially when you point out points in the sermons. I'm like, well, at least somebody was listening. That's good. That's good. But it really is an encouragement. So let me just urge you to keep doing that. Make that come alive as we look at God's Word together. Um, n- now I want us to kind of shift gears a little bit and uh, work our way into our passage this morning. How many of you read ahead? How many of you thought when you read ahead, i got to see what he's going to do with this one? <laughs> okay. I read ahead too, and I asked the same question. <laughs> it's, a, it's a challenging one. But it's important. It's the fourth of five warnings that we see in the book of Hebrews. So we have talked about three of them. Now we enter into the fourth of those, those warnings, and they're all very challenging. And any time you see biblical challenging passages, you're always going to have lots of debate about what exactly they mean. And the question that a lot of people have here is, who is the author talking to? When he goes into this shifting of gears and is speaking this warning message, who's he talking to? Now, some uh, look at that and they answer that question by saying, well, he's talking about Christians. He's talking about Christians who are at risk of losing their salvation because they've sinned to such a degree that they can no longer be saved. Well, as I consider that possibility, it's easy for me to dismiss because it's not something that is supported biblically. We know with absolute certainty that our eternal security is based on God's promise and not on our performance. And so when we are sealed by the Spirit, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are secure for all eternity. So we can eliminate that option. The second option people might come up with is that these are Christians who are not going to lose their salvation, but perhaps in some way lose their heavenly reward. Their ongoing sinful choices have caused them to incur a stricter judgment. And there's actually some some truth and some passages that might reflect some of that. But I don't believe that's what we see in the book of Hebrews. And the reason is, is the language is very strong and seems to be intentional. He talks about adversaries and enemies. He talks about fear and wrath. And I just don't see that as being consistent with language that is intended for God's people. So I've taken the stance from the very beginning that these were intended for unbelievers. But keep in mind, he's writing this letter to the church. So these are unbelievers from within the life of the church, those who kind of blend in with everyone else, but they have never truly committed their life to Jesus Christ. And where this becomes evident, which is, really appropriate for what this letter is referring to. Where it becomes evident is with persecution, which is what this church is facing, isn't it? Because in the midst of persecution, instead of enduring, they abandon their faith, forsaking their beliefs. I believe this is exactly what John had in mind when he writes 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, and he says this, they went out from us. But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they, are all, they all are not of us. See, I believe this is what is happening among the Hebrew Christians that the author is writing to. And that's why I think the, the warning is so strong. And we'll see that as we walk through the passage together. But this is why. Their their eternal destiny is at stake here. So this is no small matter. This is not like a warning sign that says, hey, slow down, speed bumps ahead. This is high voltage. Touch it and you will die. It's that kind of warning. There's that much at stake. So it's more than just a word of caution. But right alongside the warning is a reminder. A reminder for those who endure. And the reward that awaits them. Because you can imagine, just think about this. Put yourself in their shoes. As people are abandoning their faith in the midst of persecution, it would be easy to be discouraged and begin to doubt your own faith. What do you believe in? Are you willing to stand for that? So in the midst of that context... He's helping them understand that their faithful endurance is evidence of their saving faith. Their faithful endurance is evidence of their saving faith. And he's encouraging them to stand strong. Before we look at our passage this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I do ask, especially this morning as we open up your word, that you would calm our hearts, that you would center our minds. This is a hard passage. We always need your spirit to enlighten us in ways that we cannot on our own. These are spiritual truths that must be spiritually appraised. So apart from the spirit, they mean absolutely nothing. In fact, we would say they're foolish. But by your spirit, you bring that truth alive in our lives. And Lord, I just pray that in this warning if it needs to speak to us, that it would penetrate deeply. And Lord, in this reminder, if it needs to speak to us, that it would penetrate deeply. Your word is living. It is active. And may it be so this morning as we look at it together. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And we'll pick up where we left off last in verse 26. I'd love for you to follow along with me as I read in verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment, and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the testimony of two or three witnesses, or set aside the law of Moses, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Those are strong words, aren't they? How many of y'all have heard of the sermon, famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards? that says, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Anybody heard of that? Okay. As you might expect, it was based on this passage. And when you hear that title, just just... You know, if you saw that in the bulletin, what would you kind of expect that day? I know for me, it would be a fire and brimstone, passionate, pulpit-pounding preacher. That's what I have in mind when I hear that title. But I just want you to know that's not what it was at all. In fact, Jonathan Edwards was known to be so soft-spoken that at times you couldn't hardly hear him speak. And this sermon was no exception. So instead of fire and brimstone, I want you to understand that this really was a passionate plea. It was based on a development in the 1700s in the early church uh, here in America known as the halfway covenant. How many of you ever heard of that? It's fairly obscure, okay? And, And this is an oversimplification. But Solomon said there was nothing new under the sun, right? I believe what you see In general, with the halfway covenant, is an earlier version of the modern seeker movement. Essentially, it, it was an attempt to get as many people in the church as possible, whether they were Christians or not. And so much so that they baptized those before they even made a profession of faith, allowing them to become members of the church, believing that it was better for them to be under the influence of the church than to be outside of the church under the influence of the world. It sounds noble. But it was of great concern to Jonathan Edwards because he felt like, and I believe he's right, it led many people to a false assurance of their salvation, believing that being a member of a church is how you become a Christian. So the sermon was a passionate plea for their salvation. I tell you all this because I believe that's what we see happening in our passage. Something very similar. Because the, the writer of Hebrews has already noticed and, and has spoken to some of the compromises that have existed among these Hebrew Christians. There's political intimidation that has caused them to, to kind of water down the gospel making it less about Jesus and more about things you need to do or things you need to say. They were caving to cultural pressure in order to avoid persecution. So he begins in verse 26 by saying, If we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And I want you to notice something here. He's not talking about someone who falls short from time to time because if that were true, we would all be in trouble. Okay? That's not his intended audience. Instead, this is an ongoing pattern of unrepentant sin. An ongoing pattern of unrepentant sin. But it is a pattern of those who were involved in the life of the church. I believe that Jesus actually identifies people like this. In one of his parables, he talks about them in the parable of the soils, when he's talking about the, the seeds that, of truth that are planted. He says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 20, The one whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man, who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but it's only temporary. And when affliction or persecution, again, what's happening in the Hebrew church, when affliction and a persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. So when, when we think about sinning repeatedly, I think we have this idea of kind of this moral disgrace. I, I don't think that's what's happening here. Instead, I think what's happening here is something that's more respectable. They're more religious than they are carnal, okay? Paul gives us a good description, I think, of this category when he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, so they look the part, although they have denied its power. So it's somebody who, who looks good on the outside, they say all the right things, But there's no life transformation on the inside. Jesus spoke to this too when he spoke to many of the religious leaders of the day. And he called them whitewashed tombs. Full of death and decay. They look good on the outside. But they're dying on the inside. Paul goes on in verse 7 of that Timothy passage. And he says, they're always learning. And yet never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Which I believe is exactly what's happening here in Hebrews. Because look at what he says in verse 26. They received the truth. They knew the hope of the gospel. But what was in their head in knowledge never made it to their heart in faith. Because when they encountered persecution, they threw it all away. They rejected the sacrifice of Jesus in order to preserve their own life. Abandoning the church. Denying their belief. So the author reminds them, if Jesus Christ is not your Savior, there is no other sacrifice for sins. It's the only one. We talked about that last week, didn't we? One sacrifice for all sin, for all time, for all who believes. There's not another one. Instead of receiving God's grace, the author's trying to help them see they're inviting God's wrath. Verse 27 describes it as a terrifying expectation of judgment, the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries of God. That's really strong language, isn't it? But I think, like Charles Spurgeon reminds us, if we think lightly of hell, we think lightly of the cross. Or as I've said before, If we don't see the depravity of our sin, we will not understand our need for a Savior. But here's here's the reality. If Jesus does not take our judgment upon the cross, then we must bear that judgment ourselves. So yes, it's strong. Because their eternal destiny is at stake. Now, since the author, again, is writing to a Hebrew audience, he's going to speak into their culture, and he starts to to talk about the law. It's an argument from lesser to greater, which was a very Jewish thing to do. He, He begins with the lesser, something they would have known to be true. Because in the Old Testament, anyone who willfully rejected the law was willfully rebelling against God. And like I said earlier, this is not just falling short from time to time. This is a verifiable pattern. Remember, there's two or three witnesses. This is a verifiable pattern of unrepentant sin from within the people of God. And let me tell you, they would have known exactly what this looks like because it was true of the wilderness generation. This is when, despite God's mercy and grace, all the people of Israel did seem to be grumble and complain. An entire generation of Israelites, willfully and repeatedly rebelling against God. But even worse than rejecting the law is rejecting the love of your Savior. Because breaking the law led to physical death. Rejecting. A Savior leads to spiritual death. Remember, there are eternal consequences at stake here. The author describes it in pretty graphic terms, doesn't he? He says the trampling under the foot of the Son of God, which is denying the identity of who Jesus is as God incarnate. He goes on and says that regarding unclean, the blood of the covenant. So they're rejecting the one and only atoning sacrifice for sins made by Jesus on the cross. And then he goes on and says they rebelled by insulting the spirit of grace. Denying the one who so tenderly reveals God's truth, brings conviction to our hearts, calls us to repentance. And that call, listen. Listen. Is gentle, is sincere. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? See, in the end, their insult. To the spirit of grace was an attitude of arrogance. It was the prideful opinion that I can do what's right for me. By refusing God's grace, they invite God's wrath. And it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Especially when he so patiently and mercifully extends you his grace. Look at how it continues in verse 32. But remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured the great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. I believe here in verse 32, the author shifts his focus. Instead of warning the faithless, he affirms the faithful. A group that he describes as those who have been enlightened. That's a word that literally means receiving the light. So, unlike the first group who simply heard the truth, these same people heard that truth and they received it by faith. A faith that brought the light of Christ into their lives. I believe Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, when he says, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the faith of God face of Jesus Christ you see it is the light of Christ that illuminates the heart of every true believer those whose faith who has have endured some very difficult circumstances and suffering instead of turning their backs on Jesus we know that they proclaimed his name even then their testimony came at great cost look at what it says there in verse 32 they endured great conflict and suffering Verse 33 says, they were made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulation. Which means they were were arrested. They were tried publicly. That's how many of these court cases went during that time. They were thrown in jail. And yet, those who were truly Christians stood by them anyway. Even going so far as to visit them while they were in prison. See, they were willing to go to those who had been thrown in jail for their proclamation of faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that by doing so, it put a target on their back as well, because now they became guilty by association. And we saw that as a result, that their property and possessions were seized as well. But look at what happened. Instead of bitterness and regret, what happened? They walked on in praise and worship. That was their response. It's much like we see in Acts 5.41 when it says, talking about the apostles, they went on their way rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. See, instead of abandoning their beliefs, they held firm to their faith. You See, they knew... as I hope you and I do too as well, they knew that their possessions were worthless compared to their riches in Christ. Amen? They knew that they had a treasure that could not be taken away. They took Jesus at His word when He says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. And here it is, where thieves break in and steal but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. That is what these faithful Christians believed. And their faithful endurance was evidence of their saving faith. Look at how he continues in verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great, great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that you, when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, For but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persever- persevering of the soul after reminding them of their faithfulness in the past he shifts their focus to the future and reminds them of that promised hope he says don't give up like you see other people doing don't throw away your confidence because it has such a great reward and he acknowledges look I know your need of endurance I know this is difficult this is not easy for anyone But God didn't call us to be comfortable. He called us to be faithful. What's true for them is true for us. God did not call us to be comfortable. He called us to be faithful. In fact, this is an oversimplification, but I think we can narrow the Christian life down to one simple statement. The righteous will live by faith. Live by faith. Live faith. By faith. You can narrow the whole Christian walk down to that simple statement. Christian, live by faith. God doesn't expect us to be flawless. He calls us to be faithful. He doesn't expect us to do great things for God. He wants us to be faithful in everyday life. As we see in verse 36, walking in the will of God. Then the author quotes from kind of an obscure prophet, Habakkuk. And I want you to know that every time the inspired word of God quotes something from the Old Testament, they're not just randomly picking a verse. There is a purpose behind it. And I think this one is very clear and helpful because Habakkuk was a prophet who was very frustrated. He was frustrated because he looked around at the righteous people of God who were going through insurmountable suffering and pain. He was frustrated because it just didn't seem fair. It didn't seem right. And so he would make his plea to God. Which, don't you know that that resonated with this Hebrew audience who was probably experiencing some of the very same Emotion, God, why is this happening when we're trying to be faithful? But God kept telling Habakkuk. You can read it. It's repeated multiple times. The righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Remember, He didn't call us to be comfortable. He called us to be faithful. We... Look back at our current stack circumstances, fixing our eyes on a future hope. And over time, I believe Habakkuk got it, because listen to these words in Habakkuk chapter three verse seventeen. He writes this: Though the fig tree does not bud, there are no, are no grapes on the vines. Notice the circumstances aren't good. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He will make my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. How many of y'all read that book back in the 80s, Hind feet on high places? Love, love that. That's what this is based on here. So the writer of Hebrews wants his audience to learn this very same truth. The righteous will live by faith. And he goes on and says, And the unrighteous will shrink back to destruction. And again, this is not just those moments of doubt, because we all have those. This is the betrayal of all you believe, revealing that you never belonged. 1 John chapter 2, Verse 19. So fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Set your hope on that eternal reward. Your faithful endurance is the testimony of your saving faith. So I I hope you can see (laughs) that this was not a fire and brimstone sermon at all nor was it in this passage. It is a passionate plea. We see the same heart. It's all throughout Scripture. I'm telling you, look, it's there. For example, 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is patient towards us, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. As Spurgeon once said, there is nothing that keeps wicked men at any moment out of hell, but the mere patience of God. So, within this strong warning is the evidence of a deep, deep love. As God withholds his wrath and invites us into his grace. So the, the picture I have in mind is I can imagine the people at the Red Sea, and, and I can just see God just kind of holding back this torrent of water that just raises up like a dam, and he's inviting people, come across, come across, come across. Because one day that judgment, that wrath will be released. But he's inviting you into his grace until that day. Remember, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is the love of Christ that took the payment for our sins. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 says, Even while we were enemies... Okay, he didn't wait for us to get it right. He says, even while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. And when we believe, we become children of God, secure within the family of God. So much so that Romans eight seventeen tells us, if children, then heirs. Heirs also of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. So stay the course we learned last week, draw near to God. Hold firm to your faith. Encourage one another towards love and good deeds. And even more as you see the day drawing near. Your faithful endurance is evidence of your saving faith. I want to close with just a small little snippet of the sermon that Jonathan Edwards gave that day. Listen to what he says. He says, and now you have an extraordinary opportunity. A day wherein Christ has flung the doors of mercy wide open. And he stands in the door calling to poor sinners. A day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing in to the kingdom of God to see many others feasting while you are pining and and, and perishing. To see many rejoicing and singing for joy of heart. When when you have cause for sorrow of heart. And how for vexation of spirit. The doors of mercy are wide open. Won't you come in? Because when you do. He will hold you fast. Amen. Let's pray together. Father I think from time to time we need strong warnings. We need wake-up calls. We need challenges that cause us to examine our hearts and to be honest with ourselves. Where are we with this? And so, Lord, I do pray that if there are those who are here this morning who, like those that this letter is written to, just kind of blend in with the crowd, but in their heart of hearts, they know they have never truly surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. I pray in this moment, They see the doors of mercy swung wide open. I pray, Lord, that they hear the invitation into your amazing grace. And they trust in the hope of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those of us who have made that decision maybe some of us in some difficult circumstances, maybe things that cause us to doubt or be discouraged, Lord, I pray that we are reminded that you hold us fast, that we are secure in your promises. Would you embolden us, Lord? Would you give us strength for endurance so that instead of hiding, we are proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ, because there is nothing that anyone can do that could take away what has been promised to us. We have a treasure in Jesus Christ that cannot be removed. So since we have nothing to lose, I pray, Lord, that we live with abandon for the sake of Jesus Christ and the glory of his name. Until you come again, we long for that day. Come Lord Jesus, come. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please stand. And that is good news. No matter what the cost, no matter how great it is, you have nothing to lose. And everything you have to gain is protected by the promises of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And So I hope that that stirs a heart that is saying within you, whatever he calls me to do, I will go. The righteous will live by faith. Trust in him. And pray this. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this sweet family, for our time together. Stir our hearts. Strengthen our endurance. Embolden our faith. Give us compassion, patience, and love for those around us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.